0: I'm Carrie and we are paranormal chicks. Episode eighty-one, and we are in the thick of it with the thirty-one days of Halloween. And we thick. Also, news bulletin here: Carrie's fucking sick again. Mm-hmm. Remember when I was sick the other like seven times this year? Uh-huh. Well, here we are again. You know who I don't think is sick? Patreoners. Ooh, 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 ooh. So, thank you so freaking much. Ewelina K. from British Columbia. Sarah P. from Florida. Morgan B. from Ohio. Emily F. from Ohio. What? (laughs) Ohio. Oh, okay. Well, hmm. Kelsey D. from Texas. (laughs) And Valeria B. from Kentucky. Okay. We go out of control with these state names. (laughs) Thank y'all so freaking much for being part of Patreon. We know that y'all are going, well, we don't know. We hope that you love all the extra bonus content, especially in October. Yeah. Also, y'all didn't know this because it was like behind the scenes and
1: Carrie and I forgot to say it. So we're saying it now, but first 50 people to sign up for Patreon from October 1st till now, because not your fault that we didn't say it. Y'all get a logo coaster, Woohoo! Woohoo! Woo! It's the X logo because X marks a spot, a wet spot. I mean, I'm just saying. I went straight to G spot, so okay.
0: Hey, same place. Hopefully. Mm. Oh fuck! So, if you want to sign up so that you can get your stickers and your coasters and all the things, there is a plethora oh. of bonus shit. Word of the day. So head on over to Patreon. The Twist and Shout. That's what I was thinking, but. Patreon.com slash the APC podcast and peruse the plethora. Oh, fuck. Enough business. I have to tell y'all that I have been binging some fucking podcasts. Oh, shit. Three of them, in fact. One of them was called 13 Alibis. Very short listen, very easy listen. 13 episodes? Five or six, I think. And they're very short. They're like 20 minutes. Okay. Is it done? Yeah, so basically, it's about the story of a guy who has served, like, 20 years in prison for a murder that he says he didn't commit. And he says he has 13 alibi witnesses that put him in Florida at the time of the murder. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it's really good. The other one is, I finally, y'all, listened to Culpable. I know I'm very late to the party. Mm-hmm. I'm very, very late to the Culpable party. But it was fucking good, y'all.
1: So fucking good. And I'm telling you, every time I'm like, Carrie, please listen to this so I can talk to someone about it.
0: And I don't. And then six months later, I do. And I'm like, that was so good. And she's like, I fucking know. I told you that six months Mm -hmm. ago. The third one I've been listening to, I talked about like months ago and said it came out and I wanted to listen to it and I just hadn't yet. And it is confronting OJ Simpson with Kim Goldman. And it is fucking good, too. I don't know if... Like it's gonna because it's like confronting colon OJ Simpson. So I don't know if there's gonna be like multiple seasons of confronting different things, is what I'm thinking. But this season about OJ coming from the perspective of Kim Goldman was so powerful. And just, I mean, there were times where I mean, you wanted to cry, your blood was boiling, you. It, you just – so many emotions. And I don't normally have emotions like that listening to podcasts. I mean, of course, there's times where I'm like, oh, fuck, that kind of makes me queasy or what you know, because it's so gruesome. But the emotion in yeah. for me – and and it may be because I remember the trial so vividly. Mm-hmm. I remember part of it being during the summer, and I was really pissed because Days of Our Lives didn't come on, <laughs> and it was during the summer. But because I, I think – just because I remember it so well, and I – remember a lot of the key players that she interviews and all that. And so it just was very powerful to me. So y'all check it out. They're all very easy listens. So if you haven't listened to any of them, I highly recommend checking them out. Okay. One more piece of business though, that we almost forgot. And then I promise we're getting to the stories. So part of the 31 nights of Halloween is that we're going to do a, ask me anything episode. And y'all all all have heard us talk about our friend, Tiffany. Tiffany's going to read us the questions And we're going to answer them, obviously. And the questions are going to come from y'all. So, we're going to start a thread in the Facebook group. So, if there's a question that you want us to answer, post it on that thread.
1: Halloween-related, like, you know, I mean, it's October. It's spooky. That takes precedent. However, anything goes. Yes. Besides Social Security numbers, okay? That's about it, because Donna has told all my other shit. I mean, honestly, they're probably like, what... Else could we know. We know everything about
0: you bitches. Mm-hmm. Because Donna tells it all. It rolls off my tongue. All right. So, this week, my story's kind of short because, well. All I, of September was my really was, long Yeah. Ones. All my shit was has been really long. But it's October. And I know that y'all are here for the spooky dookie shit. So. <laughs> spooky dookie dookie. Mm-hmm. So, Donna's story is going to be long today. So, I decided to do kind of a short one. And also, Typhoid Mary again. Touche. All right, picture it, 1958, Texas Panhandle. There's a guy driving down the road, living his best life. His name's Frank Boone, okay? So Frank is just driving down the road, and he sees this guy hitchhiking. And so he's like, well, you know, let me do a good deed. Let me help this guy out. So he picks up the hitchhiker, and, you know, they're shooting the shit. You know, what you do with a stranger in the car. And they drive up through to Oklahoma. Well, not long after Frank, who is driving, and James, the guy that he picked up, cross over into Oklahoma, James kills Frank. The fuck? This guy just drove you where Mm -hmm. you needed to be. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, he's basically your fucking Uber. You should be Uber grateful. Mm Mm-hmm. And tip him. So, James then takes all of Frank's money dumps Frank on the side of the road, and steals Frank's car. Well, it didn't take police long to track James down in Frank's fucking car. When they arrest him, they find out that his name is James French, and he's only 19 years old. 19? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? So, he gets arrested and is convicted of the murder of Frank Boone. Well, the whole time, he's begging for the death penalty. What? hmm So, James French was begging for the death penalty for his conviction for killing Frank. Well, the jury ended up giving him life in prison instead of the death penalty. Well, he just was not okay with it. He wanted the death penalty. And so, he wrote multiple letters to the governor being like, give me a new trial because I fucking want the death penalty. So, here's the little bit that I could find about who is James French. He grew up in Peoria, Illinois. Through his formative years, I mean, because he was only 19 when he killed Frank, he had been in three different mental institutions. And each time he was committed, they said that he was actually sane and shouldn't be there. James is actually quoted saying, I may be a little crazy, but who isn't? I do know that there was, like, before he was convicted of Frank's murder, there was a time that he was in federal prison for another offense, but I literally can't find anything on it. It wasn't a murder, but I don't know what it was. He's also quoted when he's talking about Frank Boone. He says, I repaid his kindness with a bullet. I didn't have to kill him to take his money, but there are violent impulses in violent men. I'm one of them. And when they asked, like, well, why'd you confess? He was like, why not? I was guilty as hell. So, he's spending, you know, life in prison. And about two years into his sentence, he has a cellie named Eddie Lee Shelton. And they didn't really get along. It's said that Eddie didn't really, like, like, he was. He just didn't really follow, I hate to say the convict code because it wasn't really about that, but it was just like the rules of having a celly. He, he just wasn't good at it. And James was not one to fuck with. So James said Eddie was not, quote, fit to live. So James had decided that it was time for Eddie to die. And just as a prisoner on death row would get a last meal, he decided that Eddie deserved a last couple of meals. So he actually got Eddie a like steak sandwich from the canteen, like on his dime, fed it to him that night for dinner. And then the next morning, let Eddie go get his breakfast. And as soon as he came back into the cell after his breakfast, James choked him to death. Damn. Basically, every article that had any detail about the murder at all, because there is very little out there about this whole case. Like, okay. Very little. Like, again, I was like three and four pages into Google, and it was all the same shit. But anyway, th- so the articles that I could find about the death, one said that he was strangled with a towel, one said with a bed sheet, and one said with a shoelace. Okay, well. So. It, that sounds like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Mm-hmm. Either way, no matter what he used, he killed Eddie. He killed him in October of 1961. So, again, he had only been in there for less than two years. Fuck. So, even though he confessed to killing Eddie, he had to go to trial. Which I don't fully understand, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But he went, had his first trial. He was found guilty and given the death penalty. Which is exactly what he asked for, just like his trial for killing Frank. Yeah. Well, that conviction was actually overturned because they said that he had been in the courtroom in his prison garb mm. and shackles. And that that gives the prosecution basically an unfair advantage because you're seeing him as an inmate versus as a yeah. person. You know, he looks like he's already guilty because he's in the clothes. Yeah, He's saying the whole time... Don't fucking appeal this. It's cool. Don't appeal it. Like, let me die. And all these advocates are the ones that are getting the appeals and all. Well, the second trial, again, a jury found him guilty, sentenced him to death. And that one was overturned because they said that, I guess, it, when, it was, when the jury was deliberating, they asked the judge, what does life imprisonment actually mean? And, And they said that the judge gave them, like, an improper response as to the definition. And so that one was overturned.
1: But yet, Curtis Flowers is
0: still in fucking jail. Mm -hmm. Well, he was in jail the whole time, too. But you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, he had his third trial in 1965. And just like all of the other fucking trials, he pled guilty. Gave his, like, not only pled guilty, like, testified with a full confession. Yeah. And this time, he was, again, convicted, sentenced to death. And even though there were still people trying to get it overturned, James French wrote a letter to the Oklahoma Court of Appeals and was like, Look, all of these efforts that have been made, like, on my behalf are against my will. I don't want this. Let me die. Well, there were a couple of things at play. One was around the time there was starting to be a push to end the death penalty, which I feel like there's, it's always a pendulum swing. Yes. You know, there's a, there's a Supreme Court rule, it's inhumane, and then it'll go back to where it's okay. And then, you know what I mean? And so the pendulum was starting to swing towards ending the death penalty. Okay. So a lot of people were pushing for him to not die. And he's like, just fucking let me die. The other thing was that even though he had been to those three mental institutions and that he had been, like, deemed sane, they—and I'm doing air quotes there—they still had a lot of psychiatrists and stuff see him while he was on death row. The psychiatrists that they had examined him were like, look, he's actually really smart, and it's believed—and I feel like I want to preface this, like, trigger warning, suicide, and— some really terrible opinions that I'm about to talk about. But it said that James was actually suicidal. And the psychiatrist at the time basically said, like, he wasn't brave enough to do it himself. So he killed these people in hopes to being put on death row and then being executed so he didn't have to do it himself.
1: That's what I was thinking. W- yeah. Since he was basically begging for it. Right. Right.
0: Well, I feel like or at least I hope that we've gotten a little more knowledgeable about suicide and, you know, people who die by suicide. And I feel like it's not that simple. So it's just interesting to see how some of these like articles said how the psychiatrist at the time approached suicide and his, uh, I guess, quote, ability to do it versus killing someone someone else to have the state do it. Well, he got his wish. When he was 30 on August 10th, 1966, at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary, he was put to death by the electric chair. So, there's a lot about his that like makes him quote famous because of his last words. So, it said that he was interviewed by a reporter cuz this was like a huge deal, you know. When they asked him, like, for his last words, he said, quote, how's this for your headline? French fries. Damn. You know, James French. Yeah. Damn. Mm -hmm. Okay, Donna. But that was actually said, like, a couple of days before the execution. Mm. But what he really said when they asked him, like, what his last words were, what he actually said was, everything's already been said. Wow. So he was put to death just like six years before the the U.S. Supreme Court put a national moratorium on the death penalty. And so with that moratorium, all the states had to resentence their people on death row to life in prison. So if he hadn't have been so dogged in his pursuit to, you know, to have the death penalty, he, he wouldn't have been put to death. So again, I feel like this is a very short story, but I just feel like it just brings up so much about mental health, yeah, and our understanding of suicide, suicidal ideations, and basically they blamed him killing them on hi- him wanting to, to to die and not being able to die by suicide and making the state be responsible for it. Which we've seen in other cases, like suicide by cop and that sort of mm-hmm. thing, and so it's like, I mean, I don't know what the answer. i do not, you know, I don't know. The other thing that it brought up for me was, in my head, I was like, if if he's confessing, why are we even having a trial? But then I was like, well, I guess they had to have a trial for the death penalty aspect of it. Yeah. So it was more so, I guess, a sentencing trial. Well, and then in my head, I was like, I'm just thinking about all. The tax money mm-hmm. wasted on three trials for the same thing yep. when it isn't even him appealing.
1: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say too.
0: Like, he's saying, I don't want your help. Mm-hmm. But here's the flip side of that though. Do you give him what he wants? I, girl, that's what I was thinking too.
1: Well, we're wasting money, right? In what way? Housing him? N- no. That, whatever. But, like, the aid and support and all of the, like, lawyers
0: having to go. You know what I mean? But that's what I'm saying. Yes. No, you're correct. But it's like, then just let him sit there Mm -hmm. and be in jail. You know, because this is not like a, this isn't a debate on whether the death penalty should be a thing or not. Oh, no. We're just talking. This, my perspective is, we're literally giving a man who killed two people, what he wants. And what he wants is to die and not face the consequences for what he did. So should we have never sentenced him to death because that's what he wanted from the jump and been like, no, man, life in prison. But then do you risk other people dying because he's going to keep killing to try to get the death penalty? Yeah. Or do you just stick his ass in solitary and be like, sorry, sorry. You know, Uh, like what's the, what's the answer? There's not one. And that's why it brings up these types of conversations because there's not, it's not cut and dry Mm -mm. because you have to look at it fiscally in that, you know, studies do show that, you know, a trial and housing someone and feeding them and all the things for the rest of their lives in jail is actually cheaper than a death penalty case because of the number of of appeals and the length of the trial and so on and so forth. So, you you know, you look at it from a fiscal responsibility of mm-hmm. taxpayers' money, but you also look at it from, you're not the fucking boss of me. Right. And you don't get to decide this. A jury mm-hmm. of your peers gets to decide. Yeah, you lost that right when you killed people. But also, innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. But, but he he confessed. confessed, yes. But, flip side of that, a jury of his peers did convict him to the death penalty. Yeah. So why are we doing 45 appeals if the jury said it, he said it, you know? Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, in my head, I'm just like, well, this is why I'm not in,
0: like, lawyer stuff. I know. Could you imagine truly, like, being on the Supreme Court and this is the kind of shit you have to decide? No. Because it's a domino effect no Mm -hmm. matter which way you decide. If you say, go with the death penalty, all this other shit goes along with it. If you say, don't, I mean, I know I'm like literally saying what I just said, but all this other shit goes with it, that it's like, well, if this, then that, then if that, then this, it's like a decision tree that the branches never end, you know? Yeah. And it's, it like stresses me out in a way, you know what I mean? Like, because it really, it really does make you think so deeply about, and I mean, and this was back in the sixties, you know? Yeah. So just think about how convoluted and. All of the things are appeals processes and that have, you know, become. Mm -hmm. But also, on the other hand, I appreciate them so that hopefully, you know, these people who really are innocent get out. Yeah. I think it was on that 13 Alibis podcast I was listening to. And they said that if, let's just say, 99% of the people in prisons in the U.S., are actually guilty. That means that there are 40,000 inmates in the United States that are in prison for something they didn't do. Fuck. And when you hear those numbers, because you're thinking like, okay, 99% accuracy, I'll take that. No, but there's still 40,000 lives plus the victim's families, plus their families, you know, that are impacted by false imprisonment. Yeah, and potential... Future victims. Because you have the wrong person in jail. Yeah. So I just, that statistic, like, I was just like blown away by that. It, yeah. I, mean, it I mean, when you hear those numbers, because again, you think, I know I literally just said this, but you think, if you have, if, if you had a 99% accuracy of your, convic- your conviction rates, 40,000 people. So you know it's not that fucking high. Right. So how many people really are in jail that didn't fucking do it? I'll tell you one, Brendan Dassey. Mm-hmm. So that's my deep thinker for the night. It is way too deep. It's. I hope y'all aren't listening to this as late at night as we're recording this because... Actually, I hope you are so we
1: make sense. True. Don't be fresh as a daisy, and we're over here like tumbleweeds.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess we want to know what y'all, what y'all think. This could be a very uncomfortable debate.
1: You know... We're not talking about the death penalty... Itself, Yeah, we're talking about, like, the judicial and fiscal and, like, all of the shit that goes along with that.
0: Yes. It's not a right or wrong yeah. on what you believe. It's a how do you navigate it, I guess. Yeah. So let us know. Please. I'm really excited for your story. I don't know what it is, but I know it's going to be good because we're in October. It's going to well, be spooky dooky. Well,
1: I think you're in for a treat. Yeah. Or is it a trick? Smell my feet. (laughs) We have all, or mostly all, have watched The Haunting in Connecticut. I said mostly. I see your eyes. I knew. The movie came out in 2009, so if you haven't watched it, uh, spoiler alert. The movie is based on the Snedeker family, so picture it. It's 1986, and the family is living in New York. It's Alan Carmen. Three sons, ages 13, 11, and 3, and then a daughter who's six years old. The oldest two sons are Carmen's from a previous marriage. They are living their best life, and then they receive some devastating news about their oldest son, Philip. He was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. The doctors had given them a bleak outlook and We're like, look, y'all need to do some radical fucking treatments and everything. So Al, Alan, we're on a first name basis. So Al, Al and Carmen are full force fighting this cancer with Philip, And that means frequent trips to the Yukon Hospital, like University of Connecticut Mm -hmm. Hospital. It's a pretty long ways away from their house, but they're, you know, doing whatever they have to do to save their son's life. However, the long car rides were torture after his treatment, and he'd just kind of, like, cry in agony in the car. His skin was so sensitive from the treatment that Carmen couldn't even hold her son to comfort him. Mm -hmm. Poor baby. So she's like, Al, I can't do this. We have to move closer. Like, we have to keep going. Mm -hmm. But, like, you know,
0: I mean, it's not helping anyone. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, his body needs to be in the strongest state it could possibly be in to fight the cancer. Yeah. And so when you're taking him on these prolonged rides and all of that that are exhausting him and hurting him, he's not in tip-top shape, you know? Yeah. And neither are they to provide him the support that he needs.
1: They're like, okay, let's find something in Connecticut. They have some trouble finding apartments that would rent to a larger family. Carmen said that everything she was looking at in their price range, it was like, I don't know, but she had, she's been on record saying it was like, if you have over two kids, it like jumped. I don't know. Like, I don't really. Yeah. I have no idea. All I know is about a dog deposit.
0: I mean, treat it like a hotel. How many guests? One.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: How many beds? Two.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm not saying I've done that before, but I have done that before. Mm -hmm. I was on a budget. But they finally found a house that was like a duplex style apartment, but really spacious. Rent was super cheap or in their price Mm -hmm. range and super close to the hospital. All their prayers have been answered. So on June 30th, 1986... They moved to the Hallahan House at 208 Meriden Avenue in Southington, Connecticut. It's a smaller town. It's often referred to as Apple Valley because it has a lot of orchards and it's just like picturesque. Absolutely love the house. Again, it's huge, just more than they could have hoped for, for like all the pushback they had been getting from the other places. They walk through, you know, and they might notice a few little things that are kind of odd. But overall, it's like, oh, my God, there's enough space. There's all of this, blah, 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 blah. However, there was one part that they were unable to examine. And that was the basement. That's where I I was going.
0: Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's because you're telling the story. So I know it's going to be like, hello. Or if I'm like, just actually this much of a skeptic and that cynical but i'm like that's just too good to be true Mm -hmm. you know if you it's big it's in your price range it's all like what's wrong with it
1: yeah the reason why they couldn't go to the basement is because of some earlier renovation project by the home's owner daryl kern so they were like look it's fine we can't get to that part of the basement that's fine like we good so, you know, they move in. After getting settled some, Carmen's just like, I'm going to remove all the building materials that's blocking our way to the cellar, part of the basement, because, like, I'm renting it now, you know? hmm Well, when she did that, she made a discovery.
0: Dun-dun-dun.
1: <laughs> Several different tools, instruments, all of the things used by morticians were in the cellar. There was a blood drainage pit, hooks, scalpels, needles, gurneys, like some kind of like chain thing where they would hoist up the coffins and stuff. So she's like, uh, what? Then like, so she told Alan about it later on. They also found a small graveyard out at the back of their house And some drawers, like, you know, of course, they probably were, like, stuck and then they, Mm -hmm. you know, did all the things and it's, like, popped open. But they had really weird pictures of corpses. Hmm. So I am going to put right here, like, disclaimer, there are some questions on whether they knew when they moved in that it had been a funeral home. They say they didn't, but some of the neighbors say, yes, you did. And the previous owner said, we informed them of the funeral home, you know, like, what took place, all the shit, all the stuff. Carmen tells Alan, you know, what she's found. She's like, we cannot tell the kids. And definitely not Philip. He's battling for his life, and she doesn't want him to have to even think about death. Mm -hmm. And they had sank all of their money into the move, into the rent. Into his treatment, so even if they wanted to back out, they couldn't, mm-hmm. because
0: that's always how it happens with a haunted house like that. Mm-hmm. Like
1: probably because of high emotions and all the stress mm-hmm. and all of that. Well, it wasn't like there was a long time where they were enjoying the house and all of that. You know, like how be like the first three months were idyllic. No, because shit started happening the very first night. Ooh. The two boys, they shared the basement, you know, the one with the all the funeral shit. And then, mm-hmm. like, it's in there. But down in the cellar is where all the shit happened and shit. Can I mm-hmm. say shit one more time? Shit. Carmen said that this one w- was the closest bedroom to a bathroom. And Philip was still getting sick from all of the treatments. Mm-hmm. So every night, you know, he needs somewhere that he can easily... Mm -hmm. Go to the bathroom and not have to go down the hall, blah, blah, blah. Their room was actually the former casket display room. Mm. Well, the haunting started with Philip.
0: Because he was the most vulnerable.
1: Mm -hmm. He would see shadows, and he saw this young man with long black hair all the way down to his hips, and he would talk to Philip, sometimes threatening, but other times he would just... Kind of stand there and just repeat his name. And so still, that's fucking scary. Right. Well, when he first saw this figure, he ran, told his mom, because his dad's still in New York and only coming on the weekends because of work right now. And she's like, boy, it's an old house. Go to bed. Mama needs sleep. This went on and on for a bit. One time the boys were asleep in their room and woke up to four men in black suits looking at something, and so they were all like kind of huddled around a desk. Well, when the boys are like, "Hey, do you see them?" all of those men, those four men in black, turned at the same time to face the boys Mm-mm.
0: don't like that mm
1: well, they ran, told their mom again. So she went to check it out. She said she wasn't thinking it's ghost. She's like, someone has broken into my house. What the fuck? But no one was there. So she's like, boys, don't watch those shows before bedtime. You know, that kind of thing. However, it got so bad that Philip asked to stay at the hospital rather than at home because he was like, I'm not getting any fucking sleep because someone keeps saying my name. I keep seeing shadows. I keep seeing this figure. And like you said, he's in this fragile state anyway, needs all the sleep he can get, and he's not getting
0: any. Ugh, it that, just the thought of that makes my body so tired.
1: Yeah. Well, Philip's name was still being called and everything, and so soon he kept trying to find the voice, like trying to find the source of everything, because at this point I think he's at his wit's end. You know? Mm -hmm. Well, he soon found some of the old shit and was like, this place used to be a funeral home. So he starts taunting his siblings and, you know, doing big brother crap. One time he called his younger brother, Bradley, down to that cellar part and there was a gurney in there. And that's, you know, where they had the
0: bodies and shit. I don't understand why none of this shit was taken out by the previous owner or anyone.
1: I read that some of it was left, so I don't know why they would be like, oh, leave that gurney there. Like, why?
0: Let's just leave the one so that the spirits <laughs> have something to play on. Right? Dumb.
1: So Bradley is talking, like, later in an interview, and he said, of course, his brother didn't tell him what it was. He was like, hey, lay down on this, and it's like, you know, a metal fucking table. Mm-mm. And so he was like, oh, this is fucking scary. But, uh... Okay, like, you know, it's his bigger brother. Mm -hmm. He can't, you know, wuss out. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to look tough. I'm going to be cool. All of the things. And he laid down. And so Philip just keeps spinning him. And he said, like, it would just go light to dark, light to dark. Like, you know, I mean, and it was just freaking him out. He said that scared him to his core. But... Philip didn't care. He's like laughing and, you know, just feeding off of his fear. Over the time, Philip's personality started to change. And then it was just like, whoa, drastically different. He became super just angry and violent at times. They said before he like dressed preppy. That's what, you know, the adjective they used. And then he started wearing all black. He then had an interest in demonology. And he started keeping a journal, which wasn't like him at all. He would just write and draw all the time in this journal.
0: You know, and they're just like, oh, it's his emo phase. Well, also, though, I feel like that's like... Oh, it's normal. Well, but like, it's like classic, like, oh, he started wearing black. Oh, he's in the demons. Oh, he's... Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, for sure. Straight to demons, always. Oh, of course. And I mean, maybe Black was slimming on him. (laughs) Damn. Well,
1: so normally that I'd be like, yep, emo, been there, done that. Did you have Doc Martens? Mm Mm-hmm. But they found his journal one time and his writing was dark. Pretty disturbing. Marilyn Manson would have been like, uh, skirt. <laughs> Let me put that in a song. <laughs> he he was like, the beautiful people, the beautiful people. da, da, da.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, so, like, he wrote poetry, but it was fucking... Ew. And one of the poems he wrote... Really had graphic, detailed stuff about necrophilia.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. Around this same time, if life wasn't chaotic enough, Carmen's 17 year old niece moved in with them because her parents were getting a divorce. And she was like, okay, awesome. Me and Philip have always been close. Cool. But he didn't even come up from the basement to greet her. And they're like, look, he's just been kind of isolating himself, you know. And at one point, it was weird because he was so scared to be in the basement by himself, like with the lights off. Mm -hmm. So they would keep the lights on all the time and shit. And then he was like, no, I'm good. I can be down here by myself then. And they're like, what? Like, you're going to turn the lights off? You know, he's like, yeah, I'm good. Like, just really isolating, just really disassociating himself from them and, you know, all of that. Well, she noticed, and she's like, look, something is different about Philip." They're like, yeah, again, he's just going through a phase, I think. And, I mean, he's battling cancer, so, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, I mean, give him a break. Break him off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Well, another instance, Bradley, again, the younger brother— he was alone in the basement, and the lights started to flicker on and off. However, remember how I said they would keep the lights on all the time? The dad got the electric bill, and he was like, the fuck is this? hmm This is astronomical. No, sir. No, ma'am. And so he went down there to teach them a lesson, and he unscrewed every light bulb but one mm-hmm. in that fucking dark, dank basement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, none of these lights that were flickering on and off had bulbs. <gasps> yeah. Well, wait. If he just, like, unscrewed them. No, no, no. He took them out. Oh, okay. Well, while that's happening, you know, the techno rave shit going on, Bradley, he saw a tall silhouette of a man. Baba ganoush, ganoush. Thank you. But, seriously, he saw a silhouette of a... Tall figure standing in the corner. Another weird thing is that the boys would hear sounds of birds, and they said it was like hundreds of birds taking flight, and it would just happen randomly. And like I had mentioned before, Philip also started getting violent, and sometimes he would just not act like himself. One of these episodes happened one night, and in it, he attacked his cousin. And he molested her. (gasps) Like, he tried. That's what she, you know, he wanted to rape her. Oh, God. Mm Mm-hmm. She was sleeping and got woke up by his hands groping and grabbing at her. No. He even yanked the rosary that she wore around her neck off. Oh, God. So, all of this is happening, you know, and Carmen is like, what the hell? how is my son doing this? You know, and he's making up these lies about the house being weird and it's all him. And what am I going to do? And she has to be safe and we all have to be safe. Because again, he did have violent outbursts. So she called up a mental hospital and was like, look, I got to, you know, like I need to, I need to admit my son, whatever. And so she didn't tell him what was happening before, and I think they went and had like a good day and then were, they were all around the table going to eat and these people just came in and he was like, what the hell is going on? Like, please, mom, don't, don't let them take me. And she's crying. He's crying. Like, it's just so much. So she goes with him in the ambulance and they do take him to a mental hospital and he remained there for 45 days. Hmm. While he's being, you know, wheeled away, he's like, now that I'm not there, they're going to come after y'all. Oh, shit. And she is like, oh, my God. Like, he, he's not himself. This is not real. Like, who, what, why? Like, he's not giving up the shtick, you know? Yeah. Like, she's not saying to herself, oh, fuck, what's going to happen? She's like, oh, my God. Just be real for one moment. Be my son. Mm-hmm. They diagnosed him as schizophrenic. When he was removed from the house, he seemed to get better. However, like he said, when he left, all of the activity kind of seeped into the rest of the house and attacked the rest of the family. Cut to one day, Carmen is cleaning the kitchen She brings out Old Faithful, a mop, a bucket, and she's like, let's get to it. Well, she's being Cinderella, you know, just going, going, going. Lucifer's over there messing up all of her floor. Just kidding. She didn't have a cat. Okay, bye. (laughs) However, without Lucifer being there, the floor was doing something funky. She said that the mop water was blood red, deep, deep red, And it made her skin crawl. And she started to smell like a putrid smell coming from it. So it's like, how did, what, what, you know? Mm -hmm. But she again is like, what did I mop over? Like, what happened? You know, trying to reason it. Another time, Carmen is making dinner. So she sets the dining room table and she's like, all right, places are set. Let me go get the food. She's going to bring it back to the table, and all of the dishes are gone. Well, they were
0: all put back up in the cupboards. What? Yeah. it's a very helpful ghost. I'm like, can I get one of those? No, I still don't want one of those, but it's pretty damn helpful.
1: Later in an interview, Carmen said that she thought she was losing her mind. I know I set the table, but the dishes aren't there. But she was still trying to reason it. And so she's like, it's this old house. It's my stress. My son is now away. He was, you know, trying to do some ungodly stuff to my relative, his relative, all of this. So she wasn't seeing the signs. Again, reasoning everything away. When they moved in, they noticed that there were crucifixes above every door entry And they're like, okay, I mean, someone's overly religious, but I'm not going to remove the crucifix. We'll just leave that there, you know? Well, they slowly began to vanish. And Carmen had thought, you know, maybe it's Philip being Philip. But some would be turned upside down, and then some would be on the floor. And this is after Philip had left, and Bradley wouldn't be able to reach it. You know, all of the things, it's like... Okay. That's weird. Like why is it with the crucifixes? They started to smell foul odors everywhere, which, you know, we know. Mhm. Especially rotting flesh and shit. Okay. Mhm. One time Carmen and her niece are in the kitchen and a dark mist just kind of wraps around them. And they both say that they were disoriented and paralyzed. All Carmen could think was to recite the Lord's Prayer. And so she did. And finally, midway through, it was like the dark mist dissipated and they could move again. Final straw was when Carmen was taking a shower. She thought she heard some, you know, a voice. And then all of a sudden, the shower curtain just wrapped around her face. Uh uh-uh. uh. Like wrapped around her whole body. Mm-mm. Like picture it. You know, the latex stuff people do, like in, you know, BDSM and stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: That's what it basically looked like. And oh, oh you didn't watch it. Did no, uh, American Horror Story. Yeah. Yes. I couldn't remember if you watched that season or not. Yes. So she
1: can't breathe. Finally, her niece was like, What is going on? She came. Got her loose, broke her loose, and she was like, I couldn't even fall over because it was like it was squeezing her. Like I said, last straw, Carmen is like, girl, you in danger.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well, she looked through the newspaper, and she found some paranormal experts.
0: Am I doing air quotes around experts?
1: Uh, Yes. It was old Ed and Lorraine Warren. Mm -hmm. Of course, Ed and Lorraine are like, yes, girl, we will come. They take two of their research assistants, which is their grandson and nephew, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then they move into their home for nine weeks. You know, so they can witness it all, blah, blah, blah. That's how they normally do. Mm -hmm. That's a long time. Yeah. John Zaffis, I think it's his name. I mean, I know that's his name, like, question mark on the pronunciation. He is a nephew of Ed. And he was, again, part of their team. And he said that soon after they got there, they were touched by the entity. And he also was like, it stunk in the house. But only, you know, it would come in waves. It wasn't just like. Y'all are hoarders and all of that. You know what I mean? It was Mm -hmm. definitely something else. John was interviewed and he said, One night I was sitting at the dining room table reviewing some notes that I had made. Suddenly the room grew bitterly cold and I could sense a presence around me. I called out to the others who were sleeping in the living room, but I couldn't get anyone to wake up. I looked up at the stairs and saw an apparition starting to form. The air was filled with a disgusting odor so foul I could hardly breathe. As the apparition took shape, I could hear a noise that sounded like a thousand flapping wings coming from behind it. I've never been more terrified in my life. Damn. And when the warrants were there, everything kind of just like ramped up more because, hello, it's like bedazzled booze going and like poking at the ghost. Mm Mm-hmm. So soon, Al and Carmen both claimed that they had been raped and sodomized by the demonic entities. Right after the Warrens got there, they started putting like a media kit together, you know, because they they love to be, you know, sensationalized news and everything. When they were doing their little write-ups, they said that they researched and the morticians who worked there were involved in necromancy, which is raising Mm -hmm. the dead back to life. And that some of them were into necrophilia, which kind of ties back to Philip and his poetry and everything. She said in the basement where the kids were, their room, again, that was the casket room, but down the hall is where the bodies were being prepared for viewing And she said that in the master bedroom, there was a trap door where the coffins would be brought up. And that's where, like, you know, that apparatus I was talking about, Mm -hmm. how they would hoist him up. You know, after they've done everything, they do it up that way and, you know, all the shit. So it was basically like a dumbwaiter. Well, she said at night, you can hear the chains just being, like, pulled and everything as if a coffin was being brought up. One time, Ed heard that sound, went to check it out, and he found two women down there dancing around in circles, singing, like, in chants. And when he went to walk towards them, they both disappeared. Damn. And so she wrote that down, necromancy. Done. (laughs) Finally, a Catholic priest blessed the house, did an exorcism, you know, all of the things. So the priest performed the exorcism. Of course, they, you know, like had a battle and all the things. Mm -hmm. But right after the ritual was done, the house felt lighter and everyone just had, you know, a rush of calm and just like, (sighs) okay, I can breathe. Mm -hmm. They stayed in the house like two years before finally moving again. I think they thought with the exorcism, everything was going to be fine with their financial burdens and everything else. I mean, that's just what they had to do. Carmen said that she, to the best of her knowledge, no one has lived there since that had activity like they had or any activity at all. After they left that house, though, Phillips' cancer went into remission and And he went on to have a life. He had four children, became a truck driver. He moved to Tennessee. However, his cancer returned, and he passed away January 9th, 2012, and he was just 38. Oh, God. I know. And his life, though. I know. Golly. The current owner of the house... Susan Trotta-Smith, she said that it is not true, never was haunted, not haunted now. And she was quoted as saying, we have lived in the house for 10 years. Our house is wonderful. This is all Hollywood foolishness. Damn. hmm The stories are all ludicrous. And she might be onto to something. Oh, fuck.
0: The truth comes out.
1: hmm A lot of people say that Carmen and Alan contradict each other You know, everyone, when they do individual interviews, either, you know, they start adding to, something starts, you Mm -hmm. know, not making sense, all of that. Well, Ed and Lorraine Warren, they had hired this man named Ray Garten to write a book. And he did. And it was called In a Dark Place. It's based on their experience at the Southington, Connecticut home, but Ray is one of the first people that noticed, okay, their stories are not adding up. And he said that he asked Ed, like, look, their stories aren't adding up. Are these people telling the truth? What's going on? And Ed was just like, look, all of the people that we encounter are a little crazy. Like, mm-hmm. so, you know, eh. but just kind of fill in the gaps and make it scary. Damn. Damn. That's what Ray said. But I also think this was after Ed had died. So we don't know his side of it either. But why would Ray be coming out saying that he fib? I don't, you know what I mean? I don't know. But he got more publicity probably saying this than he ever did writing a book.
0: Mm -hmm. You
1: know? Also, I did see that they were actually evicted from that apartment, the duplex, the house, you know, like I mean it was a duplex mm-hmm. apartment. Sorry. It's hard cuz it's a house, but it's a duplex apartment and can I say that one more fucking time? I
0: think it's a house and a duplex apartment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mhm.
1: Their landlady evicted them and she said they had not paid their rent and, you know, sometime And she said that their claims are ridiculous, it's a fraud, it's a joke, it's a hoax, it's Halloween, and it's a scheme to make money. Mm. So was it real? Was it not? I don't know. Because I have a love-hate relationship with the Warrens. Because I feel like even if they were truthful and all of that... Then I think maybe they got big. And so they were like, we got to stay there. We got to make it this. We got to make it that. Razzle and dazzle, mm-hmm. you know, and all of the things. And so I don't know. I feel like there's like a seed of truth. And then they make it sprout. Like lots of miracle grow. But also, like we had mentioned, Philip having cancer, like, you know, it was hard on all of them having to move to this new place. For their brother, Mm -hmm. you know, and the husband and father, he's still in New York having to work, coming back, you know, like, so it's just like turmoil. Mm -hmm. And so if anything negative was there, it could be dormant, I feel like. And then it's like, ooh, opportunistic and let's get them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, I can see both ways, but I'm like, am I reasoning it? To be real, or am I looking through the cracks and seeing the truth? Right. I don't know. Me neither, girl. Me neither. Well, that was very good. Thank you. Hey, it was actually longer than my others. Yay! I'm back to being long-winded.
0: Well, I mean, of course, because this is like your high holy season. Mm-hmm. We hope that y'all enjoyed the first main episode for the 31 nights of Halloween. Yes. We're going to keep building, keep scaring, keep rocking and rolling and whatnot. Oh. Trying to get this Halloween in full swing. Oh, look at you. Oh,
1: yeah. Alert, alert. We have one more Sinister Sightings to do in October, and we want it all Halloween themed.
0: Yes, please send all your Halloween shit in. Scary, funny, all of the things. Halloween. Halloween. Also, if you want a chance to win our giveaway, go to the Facebook group. There are three ways to enter: it's costume contest for yourself, if you have kids, or if you have a pet. So there's three different ways you can enter, and we will do a live drawing of the winners. On, well, on a live. So and it's one winner per category. Yeah, absolutely. So surely everybody has something for one, right?
1: That means if you're not in the Facebook group and you want to win a prize, get on over there. Click join and answer the question. It's real easy if you listen to the episodes and the like printables and like the fun little. All the things. Yeah, like the freebies and all of that for 31 Nights of Halloween. They are available in the group. That's where we're releasing them. So, even more reason to join. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: And you know what else you should do? Remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.